How are we supposed to deal with sin? How are we supposed to deal with conflict in the church? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. And the sad reality of that is that sometimes our sins are going to be against one another. Sometimes I'm going to sin against you. Sometimes you're going to sin against me. So how do we deal with that? How are we supposed to deal with conflict in the church? How do we oftentimes deal with conflict in the church? During the Korean War, there was a Korean houseboy who worked for some American soldiers. And the American soldiers were constantly playing jokes. They were constantly playing pranks on this little Korean boy. They would tie his shoes together. They would lock him outside of the house. They would hide his belongings. And they thought that it was really funny. Well, one day, they finally figured out that the little boy didn't think it was so funny. It made him feel bad. So they went and apologized to the little boy. The little boy responded to them by saying, Oh, it's okay. I guess I can stop spitting in your soup now. How do we oftentimes deal with conflict in the church? Maybe sometimes, like the little Korean boy, we're content to spit in one another's soups. And by that, what I mean is that we seek after revenge. We try to get even. Even worse, we escalate the situation where I want to hurt you worse than you've hurt me. To add on top of that, we ignore the person that we're in conflict with. We'll sit on opposite sides of the auditorium and never speak to one another, never have anything to do with one another. We gossip. We talk about the person behind their back. We try to lower everybody else's view of that person so that we can get people on our side, so that people will like me and dislike them, so that people will feel the same way about this person that I feel about them. That's how we oftentimes deal with conflict in the church. But that's not the question that we're asking. The question that we're asking is how are we supposed to deal with conflict in the church? When you go over to Matthew chapter 18... Verses 15 through 17, Jesus tells us how to do it. Jesus tells us in a four-step process how to deal with conflict in the church. He says in 15, if your brother sins against you, if there's conflict there, if your brother sins against you, if your brother does something wrong to you, then here's what you do. He says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother and that relationship is able to be restored. But what if he doesn't listen? Well, verse 16, if he doesn't listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. In verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, then tell it to the church, to the assembly. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. How are we supposed to deal with conflict in the church? Jesus says this is how you deal with it. If your brother sins against you, then you go down this four-step process trying to restore that relationship. Imagine Jesus' disciples as perhaps they're hearing this message for the first time. As Peter hears this message, it brings a question to his mind. If you skip down just a few verses to Matthew 18 and verse 21, Peter came up and said to Jesus, he pulls Jesus aside and he asks him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? 
Jesus is talking about if your brother sins against you, then this is what you do. These are the steps that you take. This is the process that you go down. And so it creates a question in Peter's mind. How often do I have to do that? How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Why do you think Peter's asking that question? It's kind of like a husband and wife sitting and watching TV. The husband gets up off the couch and he's about two steps from getting into the kitchen and the wife asks him, hey honey, are, are you going into the kitchen? Why is she asking that question? Is she asking that question for information? Is she asking that question because she's curious? Well, yeah, I actually am going into the kitchen. Well, good, I, I just wanted to know where you were going. That's not it, is it? Guys, if you haven't realized this, then, then here's a free lesson. When she asks you a question like that, she's not asking for information. She's not asking yes or no. She's asking if you're going into the kitchen so that you can get something for her and bring it back to her. Okay? Just expect that. Jesus is talking about when your brother sins against you, here's what you do. It creates a question in Peter's mind. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Why is Peter asking that question? Do you think that Peter's just asking for information? Do you think this is a curiosity question? Do you think that Peter is looking for a doctrinal discourse on how many times you have to forgive your brother when they sin against you? I don't think so. Because if you go back to the very beginning of the chapter, what sets up this whole context in the first place is in verse number 1, where it says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? If you look at parallel accounts of that in Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9, they're asking Jesus that question because that's what they've been arguing about. They've been fighting with one another about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to be greater than you. No, no, I'm going to be greater than you. And so they bring the, the, the difficulty, they bring the argument before Jesus and, and ask, who's it going to be? Who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be him? Is it going to be him? They've been fighting, they've been arguing with one another, and so when Peter asks this question, he pulls Jesus aside. I imagine him looking at the rest of the disciples. Lord, how often do I have to forgive these rascals? How many times are they going to have to do this to me? How many times are they going to fight with me and argue with me and look down on me and say they're going to be greater than me and I'm obligated to forgive them? How many times am I going to have to forgive these brothers? What's Peter's suggestion? Look at the second question. As many as seven times? Peter thought that he was being pretty generous there because Jewish rabbis taught at the time that three times was enough. Forgive somebody three times, that's good. If somebody wrongs you the fourth time, then they're cut off. You don't have to forgive them again. And so Peter thought he was being very gracious. He thought that he was being very generous. And perhaps it's not just that seven is more than three. Back in this time, seven was a very special number. It was the number of completeness. He looks at the other disciples sitting in the room. He pulls Jesus aside. How often are they going to do this to me and I have to forgive them? Up to seven times? Because if that's the case, they only got four times left. How does Jesus respond? Jesus' response is what we're going to be focusing on for the rest of our time together this morning. Jesus first initially responds with a rebuke in verse number 22. Peter probably thought that Jesus was going to praise him. Well, yes, Peter, that's exactly right. 
You are so generous. You're being so great. You, you know what all the other rabbis say. They say that three times is enough, and you're saying seven? That is so generous. Let, let, let's go with that. Forgive seven times. He was probably expecting to hear praise from Jesus, but that's not what he gets. Instead, he gets a mild rebuke. Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Perhaps in that statement, Jesus is alluding back to Genesis chapter 4 and verse 24 where the Bible's talking about the descendants of Cain. And as it talks about the descendants of Cain, there's a descendant named Lamech who makes this statement. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Lamech says, if anybody does anything wrong to me, the revenge that I'm going to pour out on them is going to be seventy-seven times their initial action. I believe in Matthew 18 and verse 22, Jesus takes that statement of revenge and he reverses it. He takes a statement of revenge and he transforms it into a statement about forgiveness. How often are these rascals going to sin against me and I have to forgive them? Up to seven times? I don't say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy-seven times. The number of completeness times eleven. Is Jesus saying that we need to take out our notebooks? We need to keep some records? Every time a person wrongs us, we put a little tally mark by their name, and when they get up to the 78th time, we don't forgive them anymore. Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not saying that you should forgive somebody 77 times and then cut them off on the 78th time. No, instead what He's saying is that our forgiveness should be unlimited. How many times we're willing to forgive our brothers and sisters should not be tied to a specific number. The forgiveness that's associated with followers of Jesus does not know any boundaries. You can't put it in a box. You can't count up to a certain number and say that's it. So Jesus presents that idea to Peter. You forgive as many times as you need to forgive. He elaborates on that and extends that idea in a parable. Beginning in Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 23. Imagine for just a second a kingdom. And of course, over a kingdom you have a king. A master. That king, that master has servants who owe debts to him. And finally the, the day comes whenever he wants to settle his accounts. He wants to bring his debtors in and to be repaid the money that is owed to him. And so as he begins to settle his accounts, in comes a servant who owes a tremendous debt. This is a servant that owes, the Bible says in verse 24, 10,000 talents. Do you know how much 10,000 talents would be in today's money? At the very least, it would probably be about a billion dollars. In walks a servant before the master, before the king, who owes a billion dollars, 10,000 talents, a debt that he's never going to be able to repay. Back in this time, if somebody owed you a debt, you had an option to sell that person into slavery, to take the money from that and put it towards the debt that they owe you. And that's what the king is going to do. In verse 25, he owes this tremendous debt of a billion dollars, 10,000 talents. And since he couldn't pay it, his master ordered him to be sold. But it's not just him. It's also his wife, his children, and all of his possessions. He's going to sell this man and everything he has to get back just a little bit of his money. It wouldn't get back the complete 10,000 talents. At least he would get back just a fraction of the money that he's owed. The servant literally gets down on his hands and knees 
he sprawls himself out on the ground and he begs, he desperately implores, the ESV says with the Master, have patience with me. Look, just give me a little bit more time. I don't know how in the world I'm going to do it, but if you'll just be a little bit more patient and you'll give me a little bit more time, I'll repay you every single penny of this debt that I owe. Just have a little more patience. Something changes in the king. Something changes in this master. You go back just a few verses ago, he's ready to sell this man and all that he has, his family, into slavery. But when he sees this servant sprawled out on the ground in humility, begging for just a little bit more time, the king felt compassion. He felt pity for this servant. And he didn't just reduce the debt. He didn't just give him a little bit more time. The Bible says he released him and forgave his debt entirely. A debt of $1 billion, 10,000 talents out the window, gone. You don't owe this anymore. You've been forgiven. Isn't that a beautiful picture of how our King has been willing to forgive us? As people, we owe a tremendous debt to God. Because of the sins that we've committed against Him, we owe a debt that we cannot repay. It's an insurmountable debt. We can't repay it now. We'll never be able to repay it. It's a debt that allots to a lot more than a billion or even two, three, four, five billion dollars. We owe a tremendous debt to God. And as a result of that debt, we deserve to be sold. We deserve to be cast aside. We deserve to spend the rest of our life into all of eternity in the slavery of sin and guilt and death. That's what we deserve because of the debt that we owe our King. But yet, what have we done? As Christians, we've thrown ourselves down before Him. In humility and submission, we've fallen down before the King. And out of great compassion, He hasn't just reduced our debt. He hasn't just given us a little bit more time to pay. He has forgiven our debt entirely. He has completely released us of our sins. It's what we talked about last week. Last week we asked the question, what is forgiveness when it comes to God's relation with us? And we saw in Scripture that God's forgiveness is Him canceling our debt, erasing our record, forgetting our iniquities, pushing it out of His mind, cleansing us of our guilty stains, casting our sins as far from us as He possibly can. We saw last week that forgiveness is what we need. And it's exactly what our God, our King, has given to us. But see, that's only half the story. God has forgiven us of more than we can even imagine and continues to forgive us of more than we can imagine. The question is, does that forgiveness make a difference in our lives? Does it make a difference in how we treat other people? Does it make a difference in how we interact with other people? If God has forgiven us of such a tremendous debt, how should we be willing to forgive others? And that's where we go back to this parable in Matthew chapter 18, and verse 28. I want you to imagine that you're in this servant situation. 
You've come before the king owing a debt of a billion dollars and he was just about to sell you into slavery, but then he completely forgives your debt and you're able to walk out a free man. You're able to walk out debt free. What would be your next step? What would the next thing that you what what would be the next thing that you do? Maybe you'd go home and you'd celebrate with your wife and kids. You'd give them the good news. Maybe you would throw a party, and you'd invite over everybody that you know. Now that you're debt-free, you're able to spend a little bit of money, and you're going to have this tremendous celebration. Maybe you would be so shocked that once you picked yourself up off the ground, you wouldn't have any idea what to do with yourself. You wouldn't have any idea what to say. What does this servant do? As soon as he leaves the king's presence... He goes and finds one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. A denarius back in this time was one day's wage. So this man is owed by his fellow servant one hundred days worth of wages. Be about ten, maybe twenty thousand dollars in our time. A, a pretty good debt, but not even comparable to the debt that he was forgiven of. You can't compare a billion dollars with ten thousand dollars. You can't compare ten thousand talents with a hundred denarii. It is so much less. Why does he go out and find his fellow servant? Why does he do that? Well, he goes out to find his fellow servant because the king's forgiveness had made such a difference in his life and in his heart. He knows what it feels like to have a debt that's been forgiven and he wants his fellow servant to know that feeling as well. He says, since I've been forgiven, I want to forgive you. Don't worry about the hundred denarii. I've released you of that debt. Is that what he does? No, it's actually quite the opposite. He goes, look at the end of this verse. He seized him, put his hands around his throat, started to choke him, and demanded, pay me what you owe. It's ironic. The fellow servant does exactly what he did just a few minutes ago. And he verbatim makes the same plea that he made just a few minutes ago. He falls down on his hands and knees, and he pleads with him, look, just give me a little more time. If you'll be patient with me, I will pay you back every single penny. Just give, have a little more patience and give a little bit more time. It was in that moment where the servant had the opportunity to extend the forgiveness of the king. It was in that moment in Matthew chapter 18 and verse number 29 where he had the chance to think, those are the words that I said just a moment ago. That's the situation I was in just a moment ago. Now that the king has forgiven me, I'm going to reach out and I'm going to forgive my fellow servant. He had the opportunity to feel compassion and to release this man of his debt. But verse 30, he refused. He went and put this man in prison until he should pay the debt. This wasn't done in a bubble. Everybody else saw what happened. So when the servants saw what happened, they were so distressed that they went to the king, they went to the master, and they reported everything that had taken place. Verse 34 says that when the master heard it, he was angry. And I think we can understand why. In his anger, he calls in the servant to come into his presence for the second time that day, and he greets him with the words, You wicked servant. You could have saw the expression on the servant's face change. You could have saw his expression fall. What do you mean, wicked servant? You had compassion on me just a few minutes ago. You forgave me of 10,000 talents just a few minutes ago. What do you mean calling me a wicked servant? He says, let me explain it to you. You wicked servant. 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Do you not remember what happened just a few hours ago? I forgave you of your debt because you fell down before me and you begged me and I felt compassion for you and released you of that burden. It didn't have to weigh on your shoulders anymore. And so the question in verse 33 is why didn't that make a difference in your life? Why didn't that make a difference in how you treated your fellow servant? Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? The servant doesn't say anything, and I think his silence is both deafening and telling at the same time. We see his guilt. He understands his guilt. And in verse 34, there's a penalty to be paid. In the master's anger, he handed over the servant to the jailers. Other translations say the torturers until he should be able to pay the debt. He wouldn't be able to pay the debt outside of prison. And now that he's in prison, he has no chance of paying the debt. He's going to live the rest of his life in the hands of torturers because he wasn't willing to extend the forgiveness of his king. So what's the main idea? Can you see what Jesus is trying to teach us? Jesus responds to Peter's question with a rebuke. He responds to Peter's question with a parable. And now He offers us the application in 35, So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. Peter pulled Jesus aside and asked these questions privately. Jesus opens up the conversation to the entire room. You hear this story? In the very same way, my heavenly Father is going to do to every single one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Listen, I, I know that there are people in your life who have wronged you. I know that there are people in your life who have hurt you deeply. Maybe even people in this room. There are people in your life who owe you a pretty great debt because of the things they've said to you and the things that they've done to you. I don't deny that. You shouldn't deny that because Jesus doesn't deny it. Jesus knows that it happens and He knows exactly how it feels. But even though that's the case, what Jesus does do is He invites us to reflect on the forgiveness that God has extended to us. Because we've fallen down before God in humility and complete submission, out of great compassion, God has released us of our sins and completely forgiven our debt. And so the question is, are we allowing that to make a difference in our lives? Are we allowing God's forgiveness in our lives to make a difference in how we treat others and how we interact with others? Are you thankful for God's forgiveness? Are you grateful for God's forgiveness? We should be. Every single day that we live. But see, that's only half the story. In the same way that God has forgiven us, we should be willing to forgive other people. Take a minute to compare the two. Compare the debt that you owe to God with the debt that other people owe you. It's not even a comparison, is it? It's not even in the same ballpark. 
It's not even in the same arena. Those things should not even be compared in the same conversation. The debt that we owe to God is infinitely greater than the debt that one person owes to us or the debt that all people owe to us. All the people who have wronged us, if you add all of that up, it doesn't come anywhere close to the debt that we owe to God. So if God has forgiven us of such a great debt, don't you think that we should be willing to forgive other people? It's our Scripture reading in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. If you forgive others their trespasses, then my Heavenly Father will forgive you of your trespasses. But what if you don't? If you don't forgive others of their trespasses, my Heavenly Father will not be willing to forgive you of your trespasses. It's this parable that in the same way the unmerciful servant was handed over to the torturers, if we refuse to forgive from the heart, see, this is not a forgiveness that's just on the outside, that I'm going to shake your hand and still have hatred towards you and bitterness towards you in my heart. And Jesus says, if you don't forgive your brothers from your heart, then your heavenly Father is not going to forgive you. And when the time comes, you're going to be handed over to the eternal torturers where you will live underneath the weight of your debt for all of an eternity. Here's what we're saying. We're saying that God's forgiveness should make such a difference in our lives that we are then willing to extend it to other people. came across a story about a lady named Corey Tin Boom. Kind of a, a funny name. But she didn't really have a funny life. She was the only member of her family to survive the Holocaust. She spent many years in the Ravensbrück concentration camp and she was the only member of her family to make it out alive. Even though she was a Christian, she still went through all of these difficulties. Well, when the war ended and she was released, it was the year 1947 when she was making a speech about her experiences. In specific, she was talking about God's forgiveness. When she finished her speech, a man walked up to her. He could see her walking, him walking in from the back. He was balding on the top, had a gray overcoat on. When she recognized him, she froze. And her heart sank within her. Because in that moment, he, she didn't see a balding man with a gray overcoat. She saw him as she had seen him so many times before in a blue Nazi uniform and a visored cap. She recognized him as one of the cruelest guards in the concentration camp that she had been in. He walks up to her, extends his hand, and in her book called The Hiding Place, she records what he had to say. He said, thank you for your fine message. You mentioned that you were at Ravensbrück. I was a guard there. I'm ashamed to admit it, but it's true. But since then, I've come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. It's been hard for me to forgive myself for all the cruel things I did, but I know that God has forgiven me. Here's his point. And please, if you would, I would like to ask for your forgiveness too. Pause. If you were in that situation, how would you respond? What would you say? What would you do to someone asking for your forgiveness who was responsible for the death of every single member of your family? Here's what she said in her book. She said, I stood there. I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and could not forgive. 
It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, hand held out, but to me it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I've ever had to do. For I had to do it, I knew that. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother. I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. She writes in conclusion, I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. For the last two weeks, we've been asking the question, what is forgiveness? And last week, as we saw a few moments ago, we saw that forgiveness is God canceling our debt, erasing our record, forgetting our sins, cleansing our stains, casting our sins far from us. If that is what you've received from God this morning, what is holding you back from extending that to other people? Who is the person? You've been thinking about them throughout this time, haven't you? Who's the person who has hurt you? Who are you harboring bitter feelings against? Who do you still have a grudge against? It's time to cancel their debt. It's time to erase their record. It's time to forget their iniquity. To do all that you can to push it out of your mind. It's time to cleanse their stains. It's time to cast their sins against you as far as you possibly can. But they don't deserve it. They don't even want my forgiveness. It doesn't matter to them if I forgive them or not. Listen, this is not about them. This is about you. You don't have to live in this prison anymore. What this person did to you or said to you, it doesn't have to be a burden to you anymore. It doesn't have to negatively impact your life anymore. You can let it go. It won't be easy. And I don't think we'll ever do it perfectly. But if God has forgiven you, you should be so changed by that that you want nothing more than to forgive others. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is what we need. Of course it is. That's what we said last week. But that's only half of it. Forgiveness is not just what we need. Forgiveness is what we give. It's what we receive from God. And when we receive it from God, we should be willing to extend it to those in our lives who have hurt us the most. So you think about this. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you have negative, bitter feelings against that you haven't been willing to let go of? What would it look like for you to imitate the forgiveness of the King? If you're struggling with one of these ideas, or maybe even struggling with both of these ideas, We'd love to help you right now as together we stand and sing.